Let's hear from one of our sponsors. Here's a timely statistic for you. It probably won't surprise you at all that almost half of us make a New Year's resolution every single year. We've all made them and most of us have probably broken them. It happens to the best of us, but one resolution worth sticking to this year, keeping your home and family safe. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is 24/7 home security with no contracts or catches. They believe the safest place on earth should be your home, so you feel protected every time you shut your door and leave for work or shut your eyes at night. More than 3 million people already feel this way every day thanks to Simply Safe. And they're not the only ones. The folks at PC Mag named Simply Safe both editor's choice and reader's choice for 2018. So 2019 feels like a good year to ask yourself is my home as safe as it could be and if you're thinking well maybe this is the year to change that get simply safe just go to simplysafe.com/dmt to get started that's simplysafe.com/dmt to protect your home and family today One that I did that the lady the 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 blame for me doing it. Mm-hmm. She's serving life life in prison. Who? Uh, this is the Diamantina Salinas Colojaco. He was sorry that I'm where I'm at because of him. He described some of my house. How would he know? Well, He got very scared for his family because they told him that his whole family was going to get beaten and deported and he didn't want anything bad to happen to his family so he got very scared. I told you recently that there had been something big happening in Diamantina Colajaco and Andres Mascaro's cases that I'd found some legal help and that the answers I was looking for might have been hiding in plain sight all along. Well now it's time that you heard them too. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. A few weeks back I put in a request for Andres's original trial documents and the court got back to me saying that they'd located his transcripts which they sent but not Diamantina's which they'd lost. I went through Andres's court transcript soon after it arrived to see if I could find any details which may impact my investigation. And while there were a few red flags such as fingerprints not being taken at the murder scene and, and no physical evidence linking Andres to the crime, I didn't really find enough new evidence to warrant telling you about it. But then I'm a journalist, not a lawyer. Since then, I've been literally cold calling lawyers to get them to look over the documents for me and also hear the circumstantial evidence that I feel like I've built. off the back of the Resendiz confession during this podcast series. Well, after a fair few knockbacks, this happened. Hey, how are you? Doing well. How great was your drive in? Great to meet you. Good. Yeah, not Excellent. bad actually. Excellent. Avoided all the traffic. It was good. Come on back. 
This is Catherine Green Burnett. She's the Associate Dean at South Texas College of Law in Houston. I think one of the challenges in a post-conviction attack like this Mm. is that there are a lot of folks who are incarcerated who are going to say, I'm innocent. That's not a difficult claim to make. Mm. What does it take for us to believe that that is true? What is the tipping point? And not only did she agree to look over the trial transcripts, but she also got her final year law students to do so too. And I think the reason it was so excellent to have law students look at it is they have the legal training, but they haven't lost their humanity, so they react as people. You'll recall from a recent podcast episode how Bill Richards was acquitted of the murder of his wife after help from the California Innocence Project. Well, this was in part due to law students at the California Western School of Law going over the case. So there's precedent for law students getting involved in possible wrongful conviction cases, and there have been some pretty incredible successes. You told me that you were going to keep some information back from your students. Absolutely. One of the things that, as lawyers, we worry about is the phenomenon called confirmation bias. I didn't want my students to listen to your podcast, as excellent as I'm sure it is, because I haven't listened to it yet either. I didn't want them to listen to the podcast and have a sense of your theory of the case. I wanted them to read the record cold and just react to the record. Mm. And so you didn't tell them about the podcast, but you also didn't tell them, I believe, about Resendez. Not at all. Well, are you sitting comfortably? Let's hear what the South Texas College of Law thought about the Mascaro case, starting with the students' findings. There's quite a lot to take in over the next few minutes, but don't worry because I'll be summarising as we go. They were very, very concerned. They thought that the case was 100% circumstantial, Mm. except for the confession. Okay, we've established that already, but it's good to have a second opinion. They also thought there was a big red flag with the confession that Andres signed. They thought the translation was bad. Also the fact that the defendant here had only gone to about the fifth grade when the statement was written in Spanish and then translated. Although he's not an English speaker, he's a Spanish speaker. We're assuming he's literate in Spanish. I'm not sure that that assumption holds up. This isn't actually something I'd considered before, that Andres would have had problems with written Spanish. There are places in the record where counsel asked him to read, for example, the first line of a statement. He seemed unable to do that. I'm not sure he even reads Spanish Mm. or the extent to which he is well-versed in Spanish. So not perhaps that he's illiterate per se, but that perhaps reads at a very elementary level. Mm. What else troubled the students about Andres' confession? He was in custody for a long time before he confessed. Meaning this can be incredibly stressful and exhausting and people are more prone to falsely confessing, as we heard in an earlier episode. They were concerned by the fact that the original statement was torn up and thrown away because somehow it didn't fit. So what was that about? The original statement was torn up. I didn't know that. And I wonder what that means. Does it mean Andres wasn't happy with what he'd signed or... The detectives weren't. They had a lot of questions about why the statement wasn't videotaped. Why didn't the officers make a record of this, and particularly with the language problem? Because he ended up pleading not guilty. Exactly. Mm. 
They didn't think the blood evidence was as significant as I anticipated that they would think. Why? Well, okay, the blood on the door handle of the car. It tests positive for blood, but it's not a match to the victim. It's not a match to the defendant. This blood evidence that Kathy's talking about was mentioned by the prosecution in court. The garage door opener could have been a spot of blood. Maybe yes, maybe no. Who knows? It wasn't ever tested. But so what? So what if there's blood on a garage door opener and then the towel that was found in the defendant's car had the defendant's blood? He's a carpenter. He testified he had a blood blister, I think. He'd had an accident at work or hit his thumb with a hammer and then the blood blister broke and there was his blood on a towel in his car. What's unusual about that? And not the victim's blood. And the victim's blood wasn't there. Exactly. So none of the blood evidence raised in court proved anything. None of it was Mascaro's other than the towel, which was found in his own car. And the state theory seemed to be the towel was used to wipe off blood from something. And nobody really pushed back on that to say, if you're wiping off blood from the murder victim, you would expect to have the murder victim's blood on the instrument that you were wiping down. So all these mentions of blood, could they have been a smokescreen designed to make the jury suspicious? Well, they're the findings of her students. What did Kathy find? There seems to me to be some uncomfortable racial overtones to this prosecution. Hmm. There was a period in the state's concluding argument to the jury where he invited the jury several times to think about the defendant's culture and where he came from. He was inviting the jury to think that the defendant was macho and that the defendant could have said the victim didn't recognize him, was angry, threw something at him, and he just reacted in a way that the rest of us, in air quotes, would think is self-defense, but the defendant couldn't do that because of his culture and where he's from. So Kathy is troubled by racial overtones in the prosecution summing up before the jury retired and invited the jury specifically to think of the Mexican culture as fueling jealousy. And the Mm. prosecutor tells the jury that in his opinion, based on his Mexican culture, the defendant here acted out of jealousy, which is neither murder for remuneration nor murder in the course of committing a burglary. She's referring here to the claims made by the prosecution that Daryl thought Andres was a burglar, which is why they fought. It's another claim made alongside the one that Daryl was killed for the insurance payoff. Well, that's pretty shocking, and I hadn't actually thought of that before, that the prosecution's summing up played up the fact that Andres was from Mexico and that he had instilled in him this macho culture that meant he could have killed Daryl out of jealousy rather than for the money. And if that's true, and that is what they were doing, it's basically racial profiling. Catherine found a further problem with the details included in Andres' confession about how he killed Daryl. Andres talks about hitting Daryl with a pipe in the backyard. But there's no blood, there's no nothing to suggest that that happened. Prosecution at trial made a big show about the fact that Andres was able to talk about the scene and how could he have done that if he weren't there. And Andres is explanation I think makes perfect sense. He saw crime scene photographs. Hmm. 
Okay, just to summarize, so far we've heard from Kathy and her students that, firstly, they were troubled by Andres's confession, the length of time he was detained before making that confession, and the Spanish translation of the confession document he signed could well have been inaccurate. Secondly, they weren't interested at all in the lack of DNA evidence. Andres had been in the house before; that wasn't troubling or unusual. It was Diamantina's home. There was a bloody towel in his car, but it was his blood, and it didn't contain any blood of the victim. So this could have been a smokescreen designed to make the jury suspicious. And thirdly, they were troubled by racial overtones in the prosecution's summing up before the jury retired. All these are really important points, and it's it's great to get an expert's view on the case. But the thing which really blew my mind, and which could be the key to this whole story, is this. Kathy found a tiny detail about what's known as a motion of continuance in the transcripts. Basically, that's when lawyers want to pause a trial for whatever reason. In this case, the defence wanted to delay the trial, but this particular motion was denied by the judge, and it's important to remember that when you hear what's coming. At the very beginning of trial, the defense team looked for a motion for continuance on the theory that some U.S. marshal or deputy was showing photographs to neighbors at the crime scene of someone who was not the defendant. It seems to suggest that there was someone else who was a person of interest to law enforcement. That's huge. Who was that person of interest? That's another investigative trail. So that's one reason. The second reason is because it was the feds. So we have some federal agency involved, whether it's U.S. Marshal Service, whether it's the FBI. If we have the feds involved, why? Wow. So there is a lot to unpack there. U.S. Marshals were at the crime scene showing people pictures of a potential suspect that wasn't Mascaro. Who could that be? I wonder. But also, federal law enforcement was involved. The murder was brutal, but it happened in the state of Texas, involving a victim from Texas, and the suspect who was arrested lived in Texas. It's a state case, and local police should have investigated from start to finish. For the feds to get involved, it would have to be a suspect who had either killed multiple times or who had killed across state lines, or both. I'm sure you can see where I'm going here. This is puzzling for a couple of reasons besides the fact that the feds were involved. When you look back at this record, the police had honed in on the Mentina and the defendant here within days. In fact, they closed this case within three days. When you have your eye on a particular suspect or you have a reason to believe that you, as the investigator, have found the motive, you get tunnel vision. You don't see other things. You don't pursue other leads. But then nothing ever happened. They did not get the motion for continuance granted. So the trial went forward, and we never heard about this deputy or agent. We never heard about him again. Do we know his name? No. And we don't know who the picture was of it as well? Totally not. We know it was not the defendant. So what does all of this mean for my investigation? Incredibly Kathy thinks that this is grounds for what's called a habeas writ, and habeas petitions are civil suits, so they'll effectively be suing the Department of Criminal Justice, saying that they're holding Mascaro unlawfully. And if they win, ultimately, it could result in either his release or in a retrial. 
because the interest in another suspect highlights how tunnel-visioned the arresting officers were. So it's incredible that you think that there is grounds for some sort of legal action here. And it gives me hope that maybe we can do something about this. If you have evidence that someone else may have been the perpetrator, then that's huge. Then that's an actual innocence claim. We don't know that. We know that some federal officer was showing photographs. So who was that? There could have been interest in Resendez. Tell me about that incident, that crime. Okay. Um, he picked me up in here in Magnolias, where some people congregate there for day labor. And uh, her, uh, Diamantina and her boyfriend got put in put in life in prison because of what I did. And I had told the police, I had told the FBI, but it seems like they don't really care about it since they got one already. Yeah. They say they don't need to give him more work or something like that. You said that without the confession, there's really nothing. What about Resendez's confession, which I, I mean, I have on tape? I think that's huge. I think what could possibly help this case is if we have strong evidence of someone else being the actual murderer and there's confirmation facts. In contrast, we look at this case where there is absolutely no physical evidence, nothing linking him to the crime. When we balance the lack of evidence other than the confession with someone else's confession, I think all of us are left with the sense that this someone else is the real actor. And in that case, I think you've got a shot at a writ. It's incredible to hear this, that Kathy thinks Andres has a good chance at an appeal. However, what about the other person caught up in this case, considering, too, that her court record is missing? What about Diamantina? What happens to her? That's a question. If it's shown that someone else, absolutely not connected to her, committed the crime, then I think she would be in a good posture to say the state's theory was I was the person directing my lover to kill my husband. If my lover didn't kill my husband and he was killed by someone who broke in, do we even really care that there's not a record? If Andres gets out, she's in a pretty good place. If it can be shown that Resendez was the killer, she's in a pretty good place, whether or not Andres gets out. That really is amazing news, as well as the Fed's involvement. We can throw into the mix Mascaro's claim that he falsely confessed, allegations of racial bias, prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective counsel, and Resendez's confession. It's all adding up. So what happens next? We have to find a lawyer willing to take this case. Okay, that's up to me to find one. Yeah. <laughs> Come back. Our students are happy to do legal research. Okay. Thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. My Thanks pleasure. For taking the time to chat. A few words from one of our sponsors. This year, make your health a top priority with help of Careof's monthly subscription vitamin service. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or generally being more healthy, 90% of people fall short of FDA recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. So find out where you're lacking with Careof's online quiz and get back on track to reaching your health goals. 
It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care-of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. And a portion of every sale goes toward the Good Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need of valuable prenatal vitamins. We'll take advantage of this month's special New Year offer. For 50% off your first month of personalised Care-of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code DMT50. That's takecareof.com, promo code DMT50. So that's the legal side of the case, but what about the human side? The family who's convinced of their loved one's innocence, but who thought there was nothing else they could do to help. You'll recall that Andres' niece recently got in touch with me via Facebook after hearing about the podcast. Hello? Hey, Jennifer. It's Alex. Yes. Are you in a truck? I'm in a truck, yeah. Where shall I park? Uh, You can park in the driveway. Oh, okay. Oh, I see you. Gotcha. Uh Okay, cool. Hey. Jennifer invited me to meet her mother Maria and her dad Abraham, who's Andres's brother, at their home in a suburb east of Houston. Lovely to meet you. Hey, how are you? Alex, good to meet you. How's it going? I wanted to confirm some of the details that Andres had told me, but also to find out what the last 20 years had been like for the family. I also wanted to tell them what Kathy Burnett had told me about the potential grounds for an appeal. Like Andres, they don't speak English, so Jennifer is translating. Over the last 20 years, I mean, does he communicate with his brother? He's never been able to visit him uh, just because of his status. I don't know if it's true, but there's a really big myth that there's a lot of immigration officers going towards Beville, which is where he's at. I took Abraham back to the time of Daryl's murder. I want to know how much of a shock... It was when you heard that something terrible had happened. They were uh, playing soccer, him and all of his brothers. He heard about it through Andres. Diamantina called him and told him her husband had been murdered. So Andres was playing soccer as well? Yeah, he was with my dad. Abraham, where were you when you heard that Andres had been arrested? And what did you think? Whenever they passed by his apartment, they found police there. And he says they they didn't even stop. They just left and waited until somebody contacted them. Back then, I guess they were very much in fear of policemen. So they did their best to stay away from it. They were scared of police due to their undocumented status, obviously. Abraham, did you get to speak to Andres at all in jail or or on the phone? He was able to speak to him whenever they uh, sent him downtown. He says that the entire time he never thought that he had done something, that he would have been capable of it, but that he was nervous just because of the fact that his brothers were out there and he was nervous for them. This sounds like, I mean, he was worried, obviously, because of their status, because they're undocumented. Did he believe in his brother's innocence? The only thing he thought about that is that because he was with Diamantina and Diamantina was married, that he was initially the first suspect. But he did believe in his innocence the entire time. Mm. Abraham, do you remember the first time you spoke to your brother? 
after his arrest. He kept giving him his hand over the, the glass and that he would just tell them that it was, he hadn't done anything and he never confessed to doing anything. All he would basically say is, I'm sorry, I didn't. I wasn't me, I didn't do it. I wanted to know from Abraham what he knew about Andres's false confession. They didn't find out right away that he had signed it because um, they had threatened to deport his family. They found out it a few times after visiting him. So I guess he didn't bring it up very quickly. I then asked Maria about the confession too. She does believe that he did do it out of love for us. Since I, he did leave like his kids back. Well, actually, all of my uncles left their kids back. My uncle who passed away, he left five kids back there, and my uncle, I believe, is four cousins. Andres. That I have, yes, so Andres, Andres has Andres. four kids in Mexico. Yeah, they're in their good twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-four. I don't really speak to them. Well, this was something I didn't know. Andres has four children in Mexico, but much like Diamantina's children. They're no longer in contact. After they found out what happened to my uncle, they kind of just made themselves very distant. They felt abandoned whenever he came over here, even though that was never the case. Mm. Since they don't know the entire story, I feel like they just have this image that he made a poor choice and that it's his fault. So did they know about Resendez's confession to Daryl's murder? Y nos habló tu abuelita. They found out because of a close friend. She called her and told her, hey, you need to turn on the TV. They're talking about Andres. And as soon as they turned it on, um, Maria Elena Salinas, which was the... Univision. Univision. A journalist that was covering that story. Univision is an American Spanish-language TV channel. And after Mark Babinek wrote the story for Associated Press, the station may have picked up on it. She says they felt a lot of joy listening to it they felt like maybe this could be something that was going to help them so they were very happy whenever they first heard about it they were very happy about it but they also knew how the laws are here in the united states and my uncle was in jail already and they didn't feel like there was a lot to do at that moment but they also felt like Resendez was being portrayed as somebody who wasn't mentally stable he wasn't right in the head and stuff like that so they thought that they wouldn't take it very seriously. Like if he was lying about it or just making it up. They just felt like we have like this big piece of information, but we can't use it for anything. I then began telling the Mascaros about the findings of the South Texas College of Law. Okay, so this is the really amazing thing. There was something in the trial transcript that... Kathy, who's I also told them about the feds turning up after Daryl's murder, waving that photo around of someone who wasn't Andres, how this detail, combined with the other problems with the case, could be grounds for a habeas appeal. Abraham was visibly moved. It's something that's, that obviously makes him very happy and that whatever he has to do, um, whatever we have to do next, basically after receiving this information that we're going to do it. This interview, I think, was 
really important for me. It solidified the fact that this is not just an interesting story, but that it's turned out to have real-world implications that profoundly affect the people involved. Thank you for thank letting you. me into your beautiful home. Thank you. and appreciate, appreciate you sitting down with me. No, thank you for everything. Of course. The next episode of the Dead Man Talking podcast, then, as I've already told you, is the final episode of this investigation. So please join me for the conclusion. We've got a lot more to tell you. We will, however, have a couple of special episodes after this, the first of which is a listener Q&A. So get your questions in to me about any aspects of the series so far, and we'll try to include them in the podcast. You'll hear how to get in touch after our theme song. We really want to hear from you. Dead Man Talking is a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our theme song is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas, and you can check them out, as always, at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, too, at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Talking, where you can follow any developments and get involved and also send us those questions. We're also tweeting at Deadman Podcast, and you can email us at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. 